Chapter Twenty Eight of Harry D. Or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by John Brandon. Harry D. Or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Section Twenty Three in which Tom Playfair surprises us. Tom, I exclaimed, when I had recovered from the surprise which this view of the case gave me, do you really think that the money was taken by someone else after I had caused my uncle's death? More than that. I think, otherwise I don't see how everything squares, that the person who stole the money saw you kill your uncle that that person was in the hall when your nurse came out to meet you, and that that person stole away while your nurse was examining your uncle's body. "'Tom!' exclaimed Percy. "'You'd make an excellent detective.' "'I hope to make something better,' said Tom gravely. "'And that brings me to the very subject I intended talking about when we started. "'This murder business threw it clear out of my head.' You've both heard me speak of James Aldean. Pretty often, too. Oh, you should have known him. He was more of an angel than a boy. He was too gentle to live, in fact. Well, before he died, he told me a great many things about himself. He had offered up his life for my recovery, a life, too, he had intended to consecrate to God. James died the very morning I made my first communion, and as I knelt over his body, I promised God that with his blessing I'd take James Aldean's place. And you have taken it, Tom, put in Percy fervently. You've taken the place of any possible boy. Am I never to be permitted to soliloquize? said Tom, quoting from the Mikado. Evidently you don't understand what I meant by my promise. James intended to give his life to God by working for God. Since the death of James, I've prayed and prayed every day that I might be deemed worthy to take his place. And last Christmas, as I was praying before the tabernacle, I got a distinct call, as I thought, to follow Christ. Boys, this summer I'm going to join Keenan. I caught Tom's hand and shook it cordially, and was warmly congratulating him, when we were both silenced by Percy's strange manner of receiving this news. For Percy, instead of joining me in congratulating our dear friend, of whom we were both so proud, had put his hands before his eyes. "'Surely you're not sorry, Percy,' I exclaimed, "'that Tom is choosing the more perfect life?' "'Of course he's not,' whispered Tom. "'He's too saintly for any such view as that.' Sorry, exclaimed Percy, taking down his hands from his tearful eyes and catching Tom's hands. Of course you're not, said Tom, gazing earnestly into Percy's face. But there's something or other troubling you. There is, answered Percy. Up to this present year, it had been my darling wish to take the course you're going to take, Tom. But this year it's all changed. Oh, if you only could know how I've suffered. Tom and Harry, pray for me. I need your prayers very much. I do not think that even Tom had ever before heard Percy complain, and now there flashed upon me for the first time 
one of the awful mysteries of life. Here we were, three boys, on the most familiar footing with one another. I had thought that I knew my two friends thoroughly, and yet for years the one idea of Tom, the mainspring of all his actions, had been to take the place of a departed friend. And Percy, the gentle, the good, he, the prefect of the sodality, whose days had been made up of noble thoughts, he had been suffering silently. I saw between his words the desolations and temptations which God so often sends upon those who are dearest to him. And in that one moment of insight, I remembered how often during the course of the year Percy had been closeted with his confessor. Yes, this saintly young man had gone on treading the wine-press of doubt and difficulty alone, and in this solemn moment had shown us that for all his happy, lovable ways he had tasted the bitterness of temptation and trial. Truly, we myriad mortals live alone. Boys, let's change this subject, said Tom, after a few moments of silence. These are things to think about. They are songs without words. Harry, I doubt whether it'll be worth your while to examine your uncle's house till your lawyers have ascertained a few little facts. I looked at Tom inquiringly. To begin with, who took the fifty thousand dollars? That's a great point. Besides the advantage of getting the money back, the thief will be able, perhaps, to tell you where you got that knife and give you some details about the way in which you dispatched your uncle. Your lawyer should collect data to account for all the servants in the house, their whereabouts, their way of life. If any of them took the money, the way they have since lived will make it clear. A servant with fifty thousand dollars. Oh, Tom, exclaimed Percy, is it quite certain that there were fifty thousand dollars stolen? That's a fact. Caggett said so. But was he lying? It's certain there was some money taken, but it's certain that Mr. D. always kept a large sum in his room. But fifty thousand dollars, now we begin to think about it, is putting it rather high. Perhaps, said I, it was even a larger sum. Whose footsteps were they? How about Caggett? Hardly Caggett's, said Tom. If we assume for the sake of argument that he stole the money, we must also assume as extremely probable that he saw you kill your uncle. Now it strikes me that Caggett, in that case, unless he's a genius in cunning, would be the last man to accuse you of the murder. And yet he was the very one who did. Again, Caggett was the man who made the biggest fuss about the stolen money. I think, Harry, that there's more to be found out yet. It's a problem, and I've no doubt that before very long you'll succeed in making it out. End of chapter 28